So I was at Frame Technology, and I have a friend, Jim Roskind, who was pretty passionate about search, and he said, hey, check this out. This is a computer library. It's on a CD-ROM, and this will be the uh, future. I think if you made this available on the internet, it would be really cool. And so the original focus was to take computer journals and make them searchable. It would essentially be a cheap version of Dialogue. When Dialogue was this information retrieval service at the time, and it, they charged you like $10 a query or $5 a query, it was very expensive. And so the original concept was to license the computer content from these computer magazines and make them searchable on the internet so computer people could find these articles very quickly instead of having to use computer libraries. So, you know, at your fingertips, you could search for all these articles and it's all updated every month. And so we negotiated the license agreements with all the sources. And so InfoSeq originally was searching for computer articles. InfoSeq a search engine for computer articles that charged a few dollars for each search. It made sense when the only people using computers were people interested in, well, computers, and finding the literature they needed was time-consuming and expensive. But that was quickly changing, so InfoSeek changed too, becoming the first commercial search engine for the World Wide Web, and in the process, they brought along their business model, or at least they tried to. Somebody suggested, hey, why don't we index the web? And people thought that was a good idea, and the web was pretty small at the time, so it wasn't all that outrageous to do. And so that's what we did. And we started seeing lots of traffic, and eventually Netscape saw what we were doing, and we became the official search engine on Netscape. You would go over to InfoSeek to do your search. And so that was good for them because they had a net search button made it easier to navigate the web. And it was good for us because we were trying to give them 10 free answers. And if you want more than 10 answers, then you have to pay. So we were the original paywall on the internet. That's right. Imagine a world where searching the web wasn't free. You had to pay for every query. That could have been the world we wound up living in if not for a few lucky twists of fate as Steve Kirsch, founder of InfoSeek, was building one of the web's first search engine companies. Are you ready to hear the story? Let's get dialed in. Hi there, and welcome to Webmasters, the podcast that's gonna make you a better entrepreneur by giving you the opportunity to learn from some of the most successful tech entrepreneurs in history. My name is Aaron Dinan, I'm your host. I'm a former tech entrepreneur, now I teach entrepreneurship at Duke University, and this is my podcast. But you probably already figured that out, so let's get right into things with legendary tech entrepreneur, Steve Kirsch. You might've heard of him, he's done some things. Yeah, I've started a couple of companies that had billion-dollar market caps. That would be Frame Technology and InfoSeek. Frame Technology would go on to be purchased by Adobe and is now known as Adobe Frame Maker. And InfoSeek was the first commercial web search engine. Everything else at the time consisted of poorly resourced academic experiments that were quickly overrun by users. In contrast, InfoSeek was trying to build a business. And it worked pretty well, too. In fact, InfoSeek could have become what Google is today, except, well, things happened. 
Steve was kind enough to drop by the show to tell us what those things were. We're going to hear all about them, but first we're going to take a moment to hear about our sponsor. Webmasters is being brought to you thanks in part to the support of our sponsor, Latonas. Latonas is a boutique mergers and acquisitions broker helping people buy and sell cash flow positive internet businesses and digital assets. That means things like e-commerce stores, Amazon FBAs, SaaS apps, domain portfolios, content networks, and any other type of online work from anywhere internet business. If you've been building something like that and you're thinking about selling it, be sure to talk with the team at Latonas. Their brokers can walk you through the entire process and help you get your business sold for a great price. And if you're hoping to buy a profitable internet business, Latonas can help you too. Start by visiting their website where you'll see all the listings for internet businesses they've currently got for sale. That website is latonas.com. L-A-T-O-N-A-S.com. As you already heard, by the time this episode's guest, Steve Kirsch, founded InfoSeek, he was a seasoned entrepreneur. That's important because unlike a lot of other people dabbling in web search at the time, Steve was trying to figure out how to make money from day one. That business background meant Steve and InfoSeek approached search in a completely different way than some of the other stories you've heard on this podcast about early search engines from people like Alan Emtage, founder of Archie, which was Webmasters episode 21, Fuzzy Malden, founder of Lycos, Webmasters episode number 52, and Louis Monier, founder of AltaVista, Webmasters episode number one. But before Steve was a seasoned business executive, he was actually a lot like all of those other early search engine founders. He was a young kid fascinated by the emerging world of computers and had some pretty impressive early mentors. Computers, I started discovering when I was in elementary school. And I'm 65 now, so you can imagine elementary school for me, it was a long time ago. So we had things like Olvetti Underwood Programmer 101s was the rage back then. I mean, that was cool. That was a little programmable calculator that was desktop sized. So since then, I just graduated more and more to larger, more sophisticated computers. And then when the internet came out, I was fortunate enough to work with the people that started the internet. So people like John Postel and Ben Cerf and others that were at the UCLA Network Measurement Center, which was no number one on the ARPANET. Yup. Vint Cerf, original creator of the internet, and John Pastel, one of the most prominent early voices overseeing the standards for the internet, were Steve's mentors. If you were to create a Mount Rushmore of the most influential internet founding fathers, both of them would be up there, and they were the people giving advice to Steve. Vint Cerf is the one who told me I should go to MIT, and I followed his advice. Fortunately, they allowed me in, so I went there from uh, 1974 to 1980. So you were an undergraduate at UCLA and then they sent you to MIT for grad school, is, is that right? Uh, no, I was in junior high school. I would take my bike and bike up to UCLA and play on the computers there. And I continued that through high school. So that's how I met the people at UCLA. And then when I graduated from high school, because Vin told me to go to MIT, I went to MIT. 
Whoa, hold on a second. What is a junior high schooler doing biking to UCLA and hanging out with the founders of the internet? Uh, Working on the computers, programming computers. So I wrote the email system used by the creators of the internet. For example, that was a fun project. And this was as a high schooler? Yeah, probably I was in high school at the time. It was written in assembly language. You know, so you could create a message, send a message. It was a local message system. It wasn't internet-based. But it was a local message system so that people could leave messages for each other on the system. It was a uh, Sigma 7 computer. And what got you so interested in computers at such a young age? I thought it was neat technology and you could interact with it. And the computers would always do what you told them to do. Sometimes to your detriment because the instructions you gave it were not exactly what you intended. But it was cool because you could do things like write programs to play tic-tac-toe, for example, right? And it was just a challenge to understand the algorithm for tic-tac-toe and then know how to code it and then code it so it would always win and then do a user interface to display that to a person so the person could interact with it in a pretty reasonable way. So... It was mentally challenging and and rewarding because you got instant gratification, right? It's not like building a house where it could take years. You could build a computer program and it could take weeks. And, you know, when John Conway came out with his Game of Life, then I used the uh, PDS-1 display. I forget the brand name. It started with an I. So I programmed that in assembly language and there'd be a CRT display that is bitmapped on the computer. And I would start off with a pattern and press the button and we'd see Conway's Game of Life all animated on this computer. It was very cool. And at the time I had to use the switches on the console in order to enter my program. Well, I guess it's no wonder Vint Cerf, father of the internet, was sending Steve off to MIT He was a high schooler coding early animations in the first email software for the internet. Those are some impressive skills he was flashing, and it was a harbinger of more incredible inventions to come. Most notable of those is the optical mouse. I was at MIT working on Lisp machines. I was frustrated because the mice were breaking all the time. So I thought, "Eh, you know, there's probably a better way to do this that's solid state and no moving parts. So I came up with an invention for the optical mouse. And I designed and built that at MIT. I showed it to Steve Jobs. He said, I like the idea, but don't like the pad. Come back later when you don't have a pad. So close, but no cigar. Well, sort of. Steve Jobs might not have immediately latched onto the optical mouse, but the Steve we're talking to here, Steve Kirsch, was still able to turn it into a compelling product. That became a company, Mouse Systems, which then supplied the optical mice for Sun Microsystems and Apollo Computer and also PC Mouse. So we were the first to put optical mice available on the PC where you can connect it into Lotus 123 and so forth. And so we wrote a connectivity program to make it work with Lotus 123 so people could zoom around their spreadsheets using a mouse. Which, of course, is nothing today, but back then, that was hot 
From his optical mouse company, Steve moved on to FrameMaker, and from FrameMaker, he moved to InfoSeek, which, as we heard at the beginning of this episode, began as an idea to charge people for the ability to search computer journals and evolved into charging people to search the web. This is where Steve's extensive background in business was impacting his approach to web search in ways that his competitors, who were academics building search engines at universities, simply weren't considering. Specifically, Steve knew and understood that providing a valuable search service was going to cost money, so InfoSeek needed a way of generating revenue immediately. We started it as a business. I jumped from my previous company to start InfoSeek, and I started as commercial business. So it wasn't like we're sitting around thinking about this stuff. It's like, hey, we got a business to run. You know, here's the business model for it. And then the original concept was these proprietary computer journals, and none of them wanted to give away their content for free. So we had no choice. It wasn't like, you know, work for us and then fund all of the information needs of everybody on the planet, we needed a monetization model. And so the most straightforward was, well, charge the people who you give value to. It was a logical first attempt at monetizing web search, charge the people doing the searching. Remember, this was a time in web history when search engines were a fairly new concept and nobody had built business models for them yet. Heck, people weren't even sure it was possible to build a profitable search engine. And hard as it is to imagine now, for a time, the strategy of charging for search queries did work thanks in part to Steve and the InfoSeek team's savvy business background and some convenient personal connections. We just started it as a website and we tried to let people know about it through PR and traditional advertising. And InfoSeek started in January uh, 1994 as this sort of pay for use service we started seeing lots of traffic and eventually Netscape saw what we were doing and we became the official search engine on Netscape. You would go over to InfoSeek to do your search. And so that was good for them because they had a net search button, which made it easier to navigate the web. And it was good for us because we were trying to give them 10 free answers. And if you want more than 10 answers, then you have to pay. How did you get partnered with Netscape? Because that seems like the real turning point for InfoSeek. Was it really that they just happened to notice you? We're in the same area where it took 10 minutes to drive from InfoSeek headquarters to Netscape headquarters. We knew the people who were involved in that, and they knew of us, and they knew that we had a quality search engine. And so it just seemed to be a very natural fit. And a lot of it's personal relationships as well. Let's pause for a moment to appreciate the important, if somewhat frustrating lesson here. There's no such thing as magic in entrepreneurship. Steve and InfoSeek didn't just magically get on the radar of Netscape, then the largest and most prominent internet company in the world. Their offices were 10 minutes away from each other, and there were personal relationships involved in cementing a partnership. I always like to remind entrepreneurs to note things like this when listening to someone else's story of success. Otherwise, they're liable to think that they too can just get suddenly lucky. Steve didn't get lucky. By this time, he had decades of experience and relationships under his belt, and those experiences and relationships gave him an opportunity he was able to leverage into a lucrative partnership. 
and it was a partnership that would become more lucrative, though more expensive to maintain, when Steve and his team soon realized there was an even better business model than charging users. We got wise to giving the searches away and charging advertisers. So we would have rudimentary keyword matching algorithms. So you would buy the keyword truck, and then whenever someone typed in truck, your ad would be shown. When we started doing that, then of course Netscape noticed, and then Netscape said, okay, we're gonna charge you for being the net search button. And then it was a competition. And so we were then in competition with other search engines, like who could pay Netscape the most to be the net search button on Netscape. So for Netscape, this was a huge revenue generator. And for us, we were kind of like, geez, we put in all this technology and now we have to give it all away in order to bid for our spot just to get the traffic. So once we got them on our search results, the goal here would be to get them to come to us directly so we wouldn't have to pay Netscape a big portion of our revenue. And of course, Netscape then changed the rules so that if you're the net search button, then you can't do that. <laughs> so it's all this uh, business haggling over trying to deliver a free service to people on the internet. And then they eventually went to a model where there were five search engines, right? You click the net search button, you know, which one do you want to choose to do your search? And then they would charge all five of us for a position on that page, right? So it's like, how do we not leave money on the table? Of course, this business model still exists today. We heard all about it in Webmasters episode number 16, featuring Jon von Tetzner, founder of the Opera web browser. In fact, Google currently pays Opera and Safari and Firefox a combined billions of dollars to be the default search engine in those web browsers. And that's because as Steve figured out and Google has proven to an unfathomable degree, Charging advertisers rather than users was an incredibly valuable way to monetize web search. We started in January 1994 with this pay model. And on June 11th, 1996, we started trading on NASDAQ. Think about that. That's two and a half years from an idea to trading on NASDAQ. I mean, that's unbelievable. So, yeah, it happened pretty fast. Shortly after, you know, we'd have somewhere around seven plus million visitors a month. And at the time, we were the seventh most visited website in 1997. And we were the fifth most visited website in 1996. That's pretty amazing from, hey, people be interested in searching computer journals. <laughs> And eventually you sold to, I believe it was Disney. Is that right? Yeah. So Disney uh, caught interest and made us an offer we couldn't refuse. And they ended up acquiring the company and we got tracking stock in the new entity. So we thought partnering with Disney would accelerate our growth. From my point of view, I started my entrepreneur career as creating a mouse. And then with InfoSeek, I was then having my company bought by a bigger mouse company, you know, sort of the Mickey Mouse, Disney. We made some jokes about that. <laughs> hey now, I'm the one who makes jokes on this podcast. And that was actually even a joke I already had planned. Ah, okay. Sorry about that. <laughs> okay, but 
But seriously, something I was wondering is why Disney? Why would they want to acquire a search engine? Oh, well, look, because uh, search engines are the root of a portal to the internet. So they wanted something that would attract a lot of eyeballs. So Disney looked at us as a way to attract eyeballs to their properties. And of course, we looked at them as a way to attract eyeballs to our property. And why did that not end up working, do you think? Why did InfoSeek fail, particularly once it had all the resources of Disney behind it, while Google ultimately won out? Disney focused on creating content on the search page uh, that would attract users versus the Google model, which was the clean search page. And if you wanted to go to news, then you would go to the news page off of that. You know, there was this fight on clutter on the homepage where originally InfoSeek was just like Google. You know, it was very pristine. But, you know, the business type said, well, no, let's add this and this and you know, we'll make sure that when they go to the homepage that they get more than just this empty search box, right? Who would ever create an empty search box? You can't build a site like that. Let's put all this garbage, <laughs> sorry, uh, you know, all this news information and stuff that people are interested in. And Yahoo did the same thing on their site. There's no more clean Yahoo search bar. It was like the little, little box at the top and it was, here's the news, and here's the markets, and here's the this. You know, it's like it turned it into the front page of a newspaper, which people just wanted a fast-loading web page. They didn't want to have it slow down because a lot of people didn't have fast internet connections. So that was not necessarily a good idea. And there were those of us who pushed back on that idea. So Disney cluttered the homepage and what? Oh, yeah, by the way, there was, there was another little anecdote where... People in InfoSeek said, we're only going to search the 100 million most popular pages instead of trying to search everything. Because if you try to search everything, then it required more resources. And so there was a strategic decision made that I did not agree with to limit the scope. I think it was like to the 10 million most popular pages, if you can believe that. And I didn't like that idea, but... There are other people in the company whose views I had to consider. And I also didn't like the idea of cluttering the search page. So maybe on my tombstone someday, see, he was right. <laughs> so that's the reason you think InfoSeek didn't reach its full potential, the potential Google would ultimately demonstrate? Yeah, I think it was sticking to your gut in terms of what you thought. So I was the one at InfoSeek that said, hey, look, we shouldn't just focus on the best 10 million pages. We should be focused on indexing the entire web. And we shouldn't clutter the home page with all this stuff. It should be clean search. And if we want to have other services, they should be available off of that. So, I mean, that I think was some of the mistakes that we made in InfoSeek, which I had argued against and not keeping the focus on search and, and building search and the advertising sophistications and so forth, I think were strategic mistakes. And when you look at Google now and, and what it's become, what do you think? Is there still an opportunity in search or will Google forever be the king of the industry? I think that it's really hard to compete against Google at this point. I mean, their technology, uh, the data centers, I mean, it's really an impressive operation. They use custom computers that are 
designed for search. They have really clever people working there. The algorithms, the performance. I mean, there is a lot of technology behind that. It would be very, very difficult to compete against Google and win. And even Microsoft, with all their resources, came late to the table in recognizing the internet. They were like ignoring the internet for the longest time. And they have a pretty good search engine as well. But Google was early to market, and they made the search engine just really, really useful to people, and they did a really good job of doing that. Really a core asset uh, cash cow for them. And they deserve it. They hired really, really smart people, and they did a really, really good job in execution. The PageRank algorithm, it's named after Larry Page, but it's also named after WebPage, so it was kind of cute naming. But the page rank algorithm was very clever. At InfoSeq, we developed something similar later on, but credit to Larry for coming up with that algorithm. That was worth something, as everybody knows. What do you think about the implications of Google's dominance? Is it good or bad for the world that they're so powerful? Look, I think that Google is a net service for the world. I think it's amazing that you get all of these free services and you don't have to pay a dime for it, right? So from a user point of view, it's just phenomenal. You know, I love the image search as well. And I love the maps and I love the Google Docs and Google Forms. And they've done a really, really good job of executing in a number of areas that if they were to go away, my life would be much harder. To be fair, I think a lot of people's lives would be a lot harder without Google. And for that, I think Steve is right. Google definitely deserves a lot of credit for how they approached web search differently and what they've been able to accomplish as a result. But hey, Google doesn't necessarily get all of the credit. Steve gets some of that credit too, but not necessarily for what he did at InfoSeq. Instead, he gets some of the credit for Google's success because of what he didn't do. The two founders of Google came to us before Google was started and said, hey, we got this idea for a search engine. And I said, so this is actually pretty clever. I really like this idea. How much do you want? And they said, well, we want a million dollars. And I said, um, not sure I'm willing to pay a million dollars. That was a mistake. My wife does not forgive me for that mistake. <laughs> no, I, I could see why she'd be a little mad about that. In fact, I'm Pretty sure that's actually the thing that belongs on your tombstone. Okay, there you go. Yeah, could have bought Google for a million bucks and turned it down. That could be how I will be remembered. <laughs> I'm glad I inspired that. And I'm really grateful that if I had made a mistake and we had acquired Google, think of what would happen. I mean, none of this would have happened. So I like to think that even though I didn't make the right personal decision, that I made the brilliant decision for the world by turning them down and forcing them to go to venture capitalists. And of course, I planned this all along. You know, that was the reason for it, to inspire them to go off on their own and do that. The truth was that we were too cheap to give them the million dollars that they wanted, but it ended up to be a really good thing that we turned them down. So, you know, the world has people like me to thank for making the right decision that allowed Google to be created. 
There are a lot of people who made right decisions. You know, Stanford allowed them to put their servers in Stanford originally and grow their traffic there and so forth. So, you know, a lot of people contributed to their success. But had I made the decision to acquire them, you would not have the services that you have today. So a lot of things had to go right. And I like to think that I was one of the people, one of the enablers of Google. You know, believe it or not, I've actually heard a similar story. In the episode of Webmasters I recorded with Louis Munier, founder of AltaVista, he told the story of how this guy named Larry called him up from Stanford to ask if he wanted to buy the search engine technology for a million dollars, and Louis turned him down. See, at least they were being consistent with their ask. Louis says the same thing, huh? There probably should be a Google Appreciation Day for those of us who made the correct decision for them to start Google. Well, there you go. Another person interviewed on Webmasters who could have bought Google for a million dollars, but turned it down. Who knew there were so many people? And by the way, that actually wasn't the only mistake like that Steve made in his career, which is even crazier. eBay, I could have bought for 10 million. Yeah, I said, no, that's too high. <laughs> so I do have this very bad history of turning down these deals. All this is a great reminder that the path of history isn't nearly as solid as it sometimes seems. Tiny decisions by one person could have completely changed everything we know. Heck, if not for Steve Kirsch realizing that selling advertising was more lucrative than selling search, we might all still be paying for our search queries. That's quite a legacy. I hope you enjoyed learning all about it. I know I did. So I want to make sure I thank Steve Kirsch for taking the time to share his story in the story of InfoSeek. If you'd like to see what he's up to today, you can find him on Twitter. He's at stkirsch. Webmasters is on Twitter too. We're at Webmasters Pod. Feel free to send us any thoughts or feedback you have about the episode. You can also reach out to me directly. I'm at Aaron Dinan. That's A-A-R-O-N-D-I-N-I-N. Or check out my website, AaronDinan.com, where you can read my articles about entrepreneurship, sign up for my newsletter, and, you know, those kinds of things. A quick thanks to our audio engineer, Ryan Higgs, who's always so great about pulling together these episodes. And a thanks to our sponsor, Latonas, for their support. Support. Don't forget to check out their website, latonas.com, if you're interested in buying or selling an internet business. Finally, be sure you're subscribed to Webmasters because we've got another great episode coming soon. You won't want to miss it, I promise. Until then, it's time for me to sign off. Goodbye. And by the way, credit to Bill Peck, who worked for us for coming up with the banner ad. The infamous banner ad was invented and first used at uh, InfoSeek because that's how we would monetize the free search was with these banner ads. And Bill Peck was the original advertising sales guy for InfoSeek. And so this is the origin of the banner ad. Hold on, I've, I got to dig into this because this is actually the third different origin story I've heard for the banner ad. 
I've heard it was created by Bruce Judson at Pathfinder, and I've heard it was first done at Hotwired, uh, hotwired.com, which was the digital magazine created by Wired. Any of those sound familiar to you? Look, I'm not trying to say, you know, on my tombstone, this guy's responsible for the banner ad. It doesn't really matter to me. It could be that a lot of us were doing it at the same time. We definitely didn't copy anyone. I mean, it was an original concept for us. We didn't go and do searches on, well, who else has banner ads? I don't know. And, you know, I guess historians would care, but I don't care. Yeah, you know, what's, what's actually more interesting to me is that it shows the true nature of innovation. Good, successful ideas don't really exist in a vacuum. They're, they're like a response to a problem that lots of people are experiencing. So it makes sense that multiple people would identify the same solution around the same time, particularly if that solution is effective. Yeah, it's a little optical mouse. Richard Lyons at Xerox Park came up with the optical mouse at the same time that I did, I actually got there first. And I think that can be shown in the patent office that I got there first. But, you know, hey, credit to Richard Lyons for coming up with a really clever idea for the optical mouse as well. It's kind of like great minds think alike is what they say. 